0: welcome to roots and ruminants your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm pasture and rangeland we're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock growing your own forage and practical land use
1: and welcome to episode number 836 of roots and ruminants podcast i'm justin Fricky sitting down with jared knock presenting
0: to you from the future in 15 years number 837 how do people I'm get those?
1: Kidding. That many.
0: That's a lot. That's a lot. Podcast, Big commitment. Big oh, commitment.
1: I think we're up to 19? We're Ooh. getting numbers shown to us on the big board. 14? And it
0: is? 14. Okay. 1-4. Four. I didn't know it was 14 or 41. I didn't know. Okay. It's 14. Okay,
1: I'm just kidding. Yeah. We're <laughs> going to talk bigger. People, More people listen. Okay. It's a ruminations episode today with Jared and myself. We're going to talk about carbon. Carbon has been a very big hot topic, uh, certainly throughout this winter. And and we're we're through the winter meeting season. And um, I almost said mating season.
0: (laughs) Winter mating season. Well, mating. Technically, the end of winter, it's the end of all the winter things meeting season, mating season. All the winter seasons are all done at the same time. Also, the season of winter is done too.
1: when it's just Jared and I, we tend to get a little, a uh, little more, um, a little more open. Yeah. Open. That's the right word. Yep. Okay. But this is going to be a good podcast. Jared has been heavily involved with following this topic and working through expire He's, he's been learning a lot and presenting a lot. And so really what we're just going to do is have a conversation about carbon where it's at right now. Um, so let's, let's start with the basics, right? Jared. Yeah, And and just kind of give a basic 101 carbon uh, presentation to our listeners so that we can understand, they can understand this whole big mm-hmm. mess of carbon.
0: Right. So, And I would say the reason that we've been following it is because, so with an Agspire, we're really building out the teams to help and assist landowners to understand different opportunities they may have to generate revenue or get cost and incentives for doing the positive land use activities that we sell through our seed products here at Melbourne Seeds. And so we hear a lot about carbon programs, and we said we, we should really figure out where they're at, if there's some synergies there, if we can help other people understand more. So um, we've had a lot of conversations over this last, again, winter meeting season with folks. Let's start with what it is. And I, I know that we maybe have covered some of these topics sporadically in different episodes over the last 13 episode. But if you're listening at home right now, close your eyes. Find a quiet place. Unless you're driving, don't close your eyes. <laughs> And, and and walk with me through this journey. <clears throat> so what carbon is and what they're paying you for when they talk about a carbon market, it comes down to the basic premise of, of this. Everybody on the other end listening here was taught in the third and fourth grade biology that plants make oxygen for people, for animals, right? So plants are part of that system where they take Carbon dioxide in and they make oxygen. Mm -hmm. The part that they didn't probably grill into our heads as much, which is really relevant to today, is that they make the oxygen for for people, for us and for all other animals, by accepting the carbon and stealing it out of the air. Mm -hmm. So the -hmm. presence of carbon dioxide is the basis of life as we know it. With no carbon, there's no life. It's the basis of all the molecules and compounds that we have. So the very fact that there is carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is the only reason that we have life as we know it or uh, of any which way that we've conceived of it.
1: Yeah, can't work without it.
0: Can't work without it, right? And so CO2 from a a plant health thing is a really positive thing. So as CO2 levels go up, plants actually become more productive. So commercial greenhouses will actually get canisters of carbon dioxide, CO2, and release them into the greenhouse, the real climate-controlled ones, Because if they don't, they'll actually make so much oxygen, they'll run out of carbon dioxide, and the plants will lose productivity and, in some cases, actually wither because they actually don't have enough CO2 in the atmosphere. So we need CO2 in the atmosphere.
1: So are we having better crop yields because we have more CO2 in the atmosphere?
0: I I think that is a reason that trend lines are gone up. Mm. I do think so. Because if you follow the CO2 atmospheric data... Last, like, mini ice age, like 150 years ago, we were somewhere in the 0.02 range. We're we're just kind of at that 0.03 to 0.04 range right now. Percent, 0.03, 0.04% of the atmosphere. So a very, very small amount of the atmosphere is CO2 versus Mm. oxygen, which is, like, 20%, right? So it's, you know, 1,000 times more concentrated. So the process that we get oxygen for our life cycle as animals, we actually have a significantly easier time because we have – you know, exponentially more oxygen in the atmosphere than there is CO2. And as oxygen level goes down, we have, you know, troubles, you know, we go to higher elevations and the air gets thinner. Even we have troubles compensating for that. So the fact that plants can exist on a slight variation of CO2, you know, is, is, is a really good thing. And the fact that as it goes up, you get more plant material, which actually should lead to a self-correction of the carbon cycle to some degree, because if you get more abundance of green living things, with higher CO2, it's pulling more CO2 out of the air, the more available it is. Does that make sense?
1: That does make sense. Yeah. Is there more oxygen at lower elevation levels?
0: Uh, so it, it's uh, – I don't think it makes a difference in the percentage. This is actually the density of the air. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. You know I mean? yeah, so yeah. the closer you get to the center of the earth, you know, the, the, the more dense the air is. I think all of it gets lighter up top, so then it would disperse the, the inner space in between the atoms, I'm assuming. Yeah. Huh. Okay, so yeah. – Understanding that one concept of where oxygen comes from but also where carbon goes helps you understand a little bit about this challenge of the carbon cycle. So if you understand the fact that every living thing is basically comprised of carbon that came from the atmosphere with some combination of picking up a little bit of hydrogen and oxygen uh, along the way and very, very trace amounts of those nutrients that we normally think of, we think that we put fertilizer out for the crop. And that helps make a crop, but it's such a very, very small percentage of the total weight of the plant. So here's like an example I'd like to put up, like point out if you planted corn seed. Okay. So you went out and planted 15, uh, we sell a thousand species of seeds. I don't know why I'm using corn seed, but it's the most visceral example that I can think of because of, we know the numbers really well. If you're like a grain farmer and you do salage silage and stuff, So if you take 15 pounds of corn seed, and that's roughly a third of a bag of corn, so 28,000 population, you go out there and you put it out there and you plant it per acre. You take that 15 pounds of corn, and let's say you raise 24 ton silage, which is a lot, but it's it's pretty good round numbers. It's two thirds, you know, water. So it's one third dry matter. So you have eight tons of dry matter that you produced on that corn field. That's just above ground, right? That's six inches of ground and above six tons. so You have 12, or sorry, 16,000 pounds of dry matter that you produced from an acre of corn and you put 15 pounds of corn seed out there. Okay. So where did it come from? Mm. And you can say, well, with the fertilizer, well, you only put out, let's say you use commercial fertilizer, not manure. You put out 350, maybe 325 pounds of total fertilizer. You took 16,000 off. Almost the entire weight of that is carbon that came out of the atmosphere in the process of robbing the carbon to deliver oxygen to animals. Mm-hmm. So, again, I want to point out the fact that the presence of CO2 is really important. Yeah, it is. But everybody's concern is, is as it's gone up, you have this what's called greenhouse gas effect that they're concerned about that they want to try and get that captured back into the soil.
1: And the only way to do that is through living plants.
0: Right. So the only way to get carbon out of the atmosphere today, if, if your concern is, is there's too much of it, which is the premise behind, you know, a, cha- a changing climate and, you know, wanting to decarbonize, is that we've taken these ancient fossil fuels, right? Mm-hmm. These these uh, fuels that have been, you know, lying dormant for a very, very long time. And then you've reintroduced them to back to the atmosphere, okay, by, by burning them, delivering them up and burning them. That's what's driving climate. It's what kind of bugs me there is a land use component change to it probably so when we take a parking lot and instead of growing a you know a green grassy field or having a forest and you put asphalt over that that's mm-hmm. problematic for you know? sure so is intensive tillage on what used to be a grassland used to be a forest um on a crop field standpoint but really most of it's about taking fossil fuels that have been trapped for millions of years and bringing them back in the atmosphere and introducing them so once it's in the atmosphere basically i have two ways to get rid of it co2 is we'll stay up in the atmosphere for a thousand years before it's would naturally get tied up with something else. There's a little like niche of a process called um, where certain rare earth uh, elements can extract CO2, um, mineral capture, but it's really, really small, non-existent, not very scalable today. So then you have basically two solutions left to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. There's a lot of Conversation, which has mostly been for the last twenty, thirty years, about trying to reduce emissions going into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But as companies are starting to want to go carbon negative, or or actually offset their emissions and go to carbon neutrality or or climate neutral. To do that, they have two choices. They can create a machine that exists. You know, let's call it out in the desert in Arizona. You build mm-hmm. a very large uh, stainless steel commercial looking plant, and then you find an electricity source for that. Uh, run that plant, and then that takes all this air and isolates the 0.03% of the atmosphere that's carbon dioxide. And then you use a catalyst, usually by heat or some kind of chemical extraction to turn that into a liquid or a solid, take it into a liquid form at that point, and then bury it back in the ground. So all that, that entire process takes a tremendous amount of energy, not accounting for energy. It costs over a thousand dollars a ton, for the direct air capture plants that are existence today. It costs
1: $1,000 $1, a, a ton, ton, ton of carbon yep. to just pull it out of the atmosphere.
0: To pull it out of the atmosphere under that scenario. Okay. And I'm quite positive it doesn't actually take into account. So the, the one direct air capture machine that they talk the most about that is in existence that probably does make sense is in Iceland where they have it running off of surplus geothermal heat. So Iceland's an island that has all this volcanic activity, so they basically can produce produce pretty much all their energy from green sources, um, geothermal, and still have a surplus at the end of the day. So that surplus they can use for things like direct air capture. Pretty much everywhere else on the planet, like 99.99% of all civilization lives in a place that doesn't have an abundance of green, you know, carbon-free, emission-free electricity. So everybody else is in a situation to say, We have the power grid as it exists exists today. If you wanted to start direct air capture in Brookings, South Dakota, you would have to pull off the electricity grid, and then more coal would have to be burned to make up that backfill of electricity. And you can't efficiently get it out. Like, you would violate the first law of all, thermodynamics is constant energy, right? You can't expend something over one direction and have it come over here and not lose something in the loss of heat or transfer of that or whatever it is. So it doesn't make any sense to me that you could burn a ton of coal to generate electricity to run the direct air capture plant that could take the carbon out of the atmosphere to put it into a liquid form and then put it back down where the coal came from.
1: Yeah, nor does that make any sense for our new Green Deal energy plan. It does not. It is very inefficient. does not.
0: Now, the reason that everybody's excited about it, okay. this is a patentable, you know, trademarkable way to do this. And there'll be tax credits and all kinds of things around this, and that's why everybody's excited about it, at least in the R&D phase. But, okay, so do you know what else does the exact same thing as that plant? What? A Tell plant, me, Jared. an actual plant. <laughs> a direct air capture plant is a plant. It's a chloroplast um, that, that does that automatically. It's a solar-powered carbon capture device. Right, that takes carbon and it's and patentable. Well, it's somewhere. some seeds are patentable, yeah. yeah, yeah, but like chloroplasts are not like you couldn't plat, get, patent a chloroplast and like make everybody sign a tech agreement to plant a seed. What, yeah, you what? The, well, I'd be better business if you did. I yeah. mean, like someone who could make a lot of money, no, but I mean, really, like you can't control that natural process, right? It's it's available and open. Um, to use. And that's what it's one of the reasons that there's not the same investment in that space is because it's not patentable and controllable. Right. Okay. So what you do at that point is, is that, and, and the, and the, the natural process is more of a cycle, you know? So the, the direct air capture, they want to put that in the ground. They want to cap it for a hundred years. Obviously the, the natural plants, It goes back into the soil, it goes on the top of the ground in the form of hummus, it gets used in the production system, either the grain or the forage or or whatever it is, has a whole life process to that. The main premise behind carbon companies today is that through active management for generally what we would consider soil health activities on both crop and on rangelands, you can increase the amount of carbon in the soil through organic matter buildup. And organic matter is about 60% carbon, you know, depending on the type of whatever, but it's about 60% carbon. And the rough rule of thumb, and again, these are rough figures, but, you know, we're on a podcast and don't have a chance to show a big chart. About one-tenth of a percent of organic matter is equivalent to a ton of CO2 in the top 10, 12 inches of soil. Okay. So if we were to increase organic matter by 1% overall that's in, a, in an acre of soil, that's about 10 tons of carbon dioxide that would be considered sequestered or captured in that top foot.
1: And how long does it take to do that?
0: Uh, so call it a, a solid decade, doing a lot of different things, right?
1: A decade to build 10 ton. I think so. We can build a ton in a year.
0: You can build a ton in the... I think you can build a ton in the year if you start from a point that has some ability to catch up a little bit. Right. That's yep. also a big factor in all this, it right? Is. It is. There's a certain saturation point in the soil. You know, it depends, but uh, for, you know, kind of un, untarnished prairie, you know, especially if it's in good health, can be 6 7% organic matter. Mm-hmm.
1: There's uh, not a lot of upside to that, though, for carbon building.
0: There's not a lot of upside to that, I don't think. But it
1: is it is offsetting carbon because you've got a... Green living plant most right every so, day. So there's some things the
0: you can do, especially if you've lost diversity over the time frame. There's a lot of studies that show that increased biodiversity, increased number of species. So, okay, so back to, the, like, wrap us up, the like, first question. We're in, like, question number one. I'm almost done with the first question. How many minutes are we in? 40 minutes? Okay, we're 16 minutes in, and I've almost answered the first question. <coughs> what what it was saying is, is that you have two pathways, basically, to take carbon out of the air. You have that direct air capture, and yep. then you have increased soil organic matter or carbon in the soil that is largely achieved by reducing disturbance and adding a greater number of more diverse living things for a longer period of time on the same soil Okay. now there's there's some individual trade-offs on species and things like that that you know we can talk about some are kind of high high carbon or low carbon right we split that you know in the catalog you know justin how many years ago did you do that you had that high carbon carbon nitrogen ratio oh, sure yeah, yeah you know that's kind of what we're species. looking at so the the more carbon species we have, which is generally more grasses, mm-hmm. right, um, lead to, to, to more carbon buildup. Mm-hmm.
1: But how would more species on a prairie actually increase organic matter?
0: So it has to do with something is always in bloom. You might, you know, we're talking about grasses, but in bloom meaning having its moment. There's not a single grass that we can use. It'd be pretty cool if we had one. That's just going to like bust out of the ground first in the year. You know, think about it from a crop standpoint. Think if we could have corn that grew like rye, like was greening up right now or Mm -hmm. like first part of April, right? Greening up right now and just like hammered through and kept growing the entire year and then stayed green until the first of December. Like there is no thing of that nature. They, you have cool season, C3 grasses that like to kind of come early and then they kind of go into dormancy in the middle of summer. Then you have your, C4 grasses, your warm season grasses that don't really want to wake up until the 1st of June. They basically have missed about two months of potential growing season. Mm-hmm. So the more diversity you have, the more you have things either peaking and ebbing at different times of, of the year, as well as thriving under different kinds of conditions. Some are doing really well when it's wet, some are doing well when it's dry. Some capture, you know, different leaf structure, making sure you have good ground cover. Then you have different kinds of root systems. Really the buildup of organic matter, we can talk about, it is partially root mass. That's helpful. But really, it's soil biology that builds organic matter, okay? Yep, yep. So the more different kinds of roots we have, the more microbes... I know you actually knew the answer to that question. It was very helpful for you to ask me, but, like, it was... That's how we build that soil organic carbon is really by increasing the abundance of life.
1: Sure. Makes sense.
0: So the more diverse our cover crops are and adding cover crops keep the living root in the soil at all times. Same thing with the pasture and range grasses. The more diversity we have, the more microbiology that we are fostering. So there's chance even for, you know, existing grassland and pasture isn't just a static, no room for improvement. Lots of of room for improvement there yet too.
1: Okay. So we covered how a unit of carbon is built Mm -hmm. by a landowner, farmer, producer. Yes, I think so. Now, how is that unit of carbon sold to somebody who wants to buy it?
0: Yep. So everybody right now is... On the natural solutions, which is what we're talking about in the you know, forestry and agriculture sector, is really in the voluntary market. There's been an existing like regulatory carbon market for quite a while. Those are really credit like credits traded back and forth. If you're in a heavy industry and you have a restriction on the amount of emissions that you can have, uh, you reach to a certain point and you're capped. And so, if you have an older, less efficient type structure and you can do kind of overpollute, you trade that out with a newer structure that underpollutes kind of like even everything out that's pretty much how the regulatory market works today or you can look at renewable energy credits which kind of look at being able to add renewable energy and offsetting what they think was in you know other emissions those are more carbon like mitigation or you know kind of offsets in the traditional sense these are actual carbon capture credits so they'll come in uh there is carbon registries like vera is one of them that you'd have to go through and say, this is my process for trying to prove out that soil organic carbon is an indicator of sequestered carbon. We're gonna do it because of these certain activities that we've worked with a farmer, rancher, forestry owner to do. And then we're gonna verify that and say, based on our models, it looks like it should be this. And then they're gonna come in and say, well, 10% of our fields every year are forestry ground. We're gonna do soil tests and actually validate that. Most of them are actually working on the premise that they're building a model today I think is a lot more scalable in the future with less intensity of monitoring. So that's, that's how that process kind of works. And so if you're wanting to be in that verification world, you have to go through a verifier, the whole process. Now, some don't go through a verifier, like Microsoft, which is one of the first people to announce, works with True Terra. I think, I'm pretty sure, I don't know exactly, but I'm pretty sure that they self-certify. They actually go through and do, Microsoft has their own internal standards, so they don't need to go through a third-party verifier. They just say, this is what we need and we want.
1: And why can't anybody else do that? Why do there? Why does there have to be a third party verifier? Yep. To make this work, uh,
0: I so the the, I guess the premise is, I mean, if you found an individual, like an individual person, that says, "I'm worried about my personal emissions. I voluntarily want to pay you to do some things that, you know, will offset that," and I think planting a cover crop is worth this much to me. I want to send you a check every year, and this person can. Uh, presumably sleep better at night because they have offset their emissions through your practices. You could make those kind of individual transactions right. if you were connected with an individual that believed in what mm-hmm. you were doing and wanted to pay you. right? This is an, is saying we need to aggregate all the information and provide some kind of third-party verification so that the customers on the other side feel like they're getting a tangible product because they don't have the ability to do that personal relationship. right? So they they would go through and scrutinize, are you – you know, monitoring and verifying things in a certain way? Are you making sure that you're, you know, you're auditing X percent to make sure people are doing the practices they say they are? Are they taking soul tests on some point, you know, making sure the model has some sense to it.
1: Okay. Kind of like I can sell, uh, I can sell meat to Mm -hmm. my buddy that lives in the cities and he knows who I am and I can tell him the story and he gets it and he's going to pay for it. But if that person doesn't know who I am, they need some verification to quantify it or qualify it as grass-fed, organic, whatever the label may be. True. This True. verification of carbon actually proves it was, I don't know, it was built yep. in this way and met those
0: standards. Yes. Okay. It's a—it's a, uh, largely the same degree. It's there to quantify and standardize what's in the marketplace so that someone can reasonably equate one carbon offset program with another or two other suppliers to see who, you know, who I guess has a better deal or who can do it the best.
1: So can we talk about some of those programs that are out there? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't even know where to start, but like uh, what are the, I don't know. What are the, what are the program? What are the programs um, that incentivize ranchers, Mm. you know, with perennial pasture um, do those exist? And then what are the, I don't know, the plethora of all the other yeah. ones out there that
0: are well, farmers, let me break it down this way. And then we'll, the second bucket has the, the folks that actually deal with the ranchers, Damn. but I'll break it down this way. So you have the first category of carbon programs is input suppliers. Okay. And, th- and this isn't surprising. I think I've said this in the podcast before, but largely in agriculture from a farmer rancher perspective, input suppliers are in charge of driving a lot of change in the industry and modernization and aggregation mostly comes from the input supplier, not so much from the individual farm level. So not surprising, some of the largest input suppliers also are coming out with carbon programs simultaneously. And I'll, you could say that this is a way that they're trying to, you know, get information, they're looking at data. They are for sure looking at information and data to try and build out a better model. There's no doubt about that. I think that should be, you know, pretty common sense. They're trying to build something out for the future. They also want to create an existing, they want to further integrate an existing relationship because they want to make sure that there isn't a need that that has, to, that person has to go to a different major supplier. Okay, so let me give you a list of the ones, that, a short list of the ones I know of. There's others but so you have Truterra, which is owned by Land Lakes. You have Corteva, has theirs, right? So, you know, Pioneer um, and Provant, mothership uh, in there. Bayer, right, which owns DeKalb, Asgrow, Channel, um, Seed and Chemical, nutrient, Cargill. That kind of fits the bucket of, like, large input suppliers, large grain aggregators, um, large retailers, But they're they're really
1: just... I mean, they're seed genetic and chemical and fertilizer suppliers, right? Yeah, Cargill
0: will be a buyer. Cargill will be a grain buyer, too, to some degree.
1: So are they in this to potentially offset some of their own? I don't think so. That's not the play.
0: I'm sure that they could probably use that, but I I don't think that they have aggressive ESG goals that I'm aware of. I mean, they
1: do, but... The data itself, is that valuable that they can use for... Well, I think it's a,
0: yeah, it's a very unsolicited, you know, view of their products. I mean, I think that you have to just be aware of that, that, that you can do that. Now, the nice thing about some of these programs is is they're also highly correlated with people that you trust, right? So if you use, you know, Climate FieldView or you use granular on your farm, you enter in all your yield data and everything anyway. Of course, they're not sharing information. are not supposed to be sharing information on those platforms, but you already trust Bayer enough to use Climate FieldView to enter all this stuff in, right? You also, you trust Corteva enough to use granular to enter all of your information in. For those programs, you can pull out of largely some of their existing platforms and say, okay, well, I'm sharing data, but I'm sharing data that was already in their internal system, okay? So how how much am I really giving away from that standpoint? Others are probably looking for data. That second second class of, like, more just carbon companies, I think is probably was perceived as being more data hungry uh, because they wouldn't have had access to it in any other way. Mm-hmm. So. mm-hmm. But I think, so it's the input suppliers. Now, okay. the nice thing about this group is, is that you already trust these people to some degree. And you can say, oh, okay, we don't, you know, they're a big business and that kind of stuff. Well, you're already investing a lot of dollars with them, right? So you're already a partner with them. If you're a corn, soybean farmer, you're already working with one of those companies, largely to some degree anyway. So you can work with a company that you've already worked with. You have an established relationship. You have some trust level there. You can You can go down that route. Now, the question in my mind is, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, is, how how many buyers do they have on the backside, versus how much are they doing this for market share today?
1: Is that public information?
0: Uh, I don't know, I don't think the buyer part of it is. Okay, they'll tell you kind of what they got out of carbon this last year, and you know you'll be talked about. And they'll you know can say at some point everybody thinks that they're looking for more buyers. Other points are looking for you know more people to sign up because they don't have enough to meet demand. Mm-hmm. It's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, not, I'm probably not sure.
1: shouldn't be public information.
0: Right? Well, I, think I mean, I, points. you know, it, I, you probably can go into public public reports or publicly traded companies to some degree and go line by line and kind of make some estimation. Um, so that's possible, I guess. Okay. But yeah. I, basically, everything that we've heard of in the last few years, it's this is all voluntarily trading for like fifteen to twenty five dollars a ton. That's yeah. pretty much what it is in the U.S. Anyway, so that's like the first group of companies. Okay, yep. so you have these these already existing. Um, input large suppliers. players yep. in the ag industry, retail grain, chemical seed, that are coming out with a program that you can use. The next one, and Agoro is kind of this uh, this kind of blend and hybrid between the two. So Agoro is is come out of Yara, which is a large fertilizer manufacturer, come out of of Norway. That's actually the one that has an existing carbon program today for rangelands, pasturelands. That's okay. one that you could sign up today. One well, of only two. So you have. Agoro and you have Yari, or sorry, Nori. 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 Ha. Agoro and Nori, which you could sign up. They're very different, though. Nori is a very different approach. Everybody else has kind of like, you do a practice, we kind of verify it, you come out, and you're good to go. Nori has, like, you have to hire a verifier yourself. It's a way, it's a, way, a little bit more of an intense process, probably more holistic by nature. Um, but Nori was really in this space probably before anybody else was. And then it was the Indigo was the next big name. Indigo, I'm not sure, but it looks like Indigo is, is looking to kind of back off of this customer-facing role and be more of a modeler in the background. So actually just, you know, sell their services rather than compete with everybody else that wants to be in the space signing up farmer accounts. They might just want to be in the background running statistical models and, and that kind of stuff, basically math experts. And they would have value too because they've built out some, somewhat of a customer base. So that's the second bucket, right? So you have have Nori and Indigo, which are in the carbon business just to be in the carbon business. And Agoro, I would say that they take carbon very, very seriously. Yara doesn't really have like a, a, you don't think of Yara as a brand that you buy from uh, necessarily for the most part, for most people in the US, like not near as strong of a retail brand as those other ones in the first bucket.
1: No, I would say most farmers have never heard of them.
0: right. So, so they're more like in just in the carbon space to be in the carbon space, not trying sure. to just you know protect. Because if you're if you're Bayer, right, and you come out with the carbon program, and you're Corteva, you're like, well, we don't want our customers. You know, obviously, you probably have to plant some Bayer products to be in the Bayer program. They don't want you leaving because they look like a more progressive company. Mm-hmm. So then they come out as well. And I'm not taking anything away from that, but you can just kind of follow the progression of how but businesses I mean, are looking at
1: it. It did seem like it was a lot of the Me Too type come just oh no we have it we're we're, we're in yep. here too okay. right don't forget to us. come sign yep. up to a to our carbon program
0: and, and for many of them it was just like oh well it's pilot right it was so, like, so we made a national broadcast that we had a carbon program and then we reality it was like available in like one state you know first yeah. year right okay. so it was it was the splash mattered more than than the throughput you know initially sure. now they're all expanding mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. third group so there's yeah. a third group of carbon companies today one existing one uh, and Soil and Water Outcomes Fund very different than the rest of it. So Soil and Water Outcomes Fund was actually born as a project c- came out of Iowa Soybean. And I know that I think it still got some ownership from that group. It's got some private equity, I believe, as well now, and some cust and some kind of owner. Um, anyway, so th- that's their structure a little bit. Um, so it's a little bit closer to like spawned out of a farmer organization. And I, I don't mean to speak to their exact ownership because I don't know it, but it was a project that kind of spawned out of there. Okay. They will pay for water quality credits and carbon credits. They pay pretty well. It's a, it's a short term contract, but that's, that's an organization that's um, active, but they're not active everywhere. Right. So they're active in parts of Iowa, parts of Illinois, a few other places today. They're, um, they might be expanding soon, but that's a, another approach on it. And the, the other one in that third bucket, the more of like the closer to the farmers would be a new initiative uh, people may be heard of called Green, called greenstone, and so greenstone is an initiative that's being uh, brought forward by Pipestone Systems out of kind of your hometown, Pipestone, Pipestone, Minnesota, and they're taking their experience prior experience um, working with aggregating hundreds of independent hog farmers into a system that makes them competitive by giving them leverage through a larger system, helping them manage it, owning a percentage of the company, and then uh, allowing that to be successful. So that's just taken taken hold. So you mm-hmm. I, your dad was at that first meeting, right? Like mm-hmm. a month ago? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I would say I mean I'm not well versed on it either, but uh you know it, it it it's it's trying to corral all these farmers to give them more selling power, mm-hmm. you know, for their carbon that they are producing. Yeah, versus having a company that you sign up for saying your carbon is worth this now we've got power with numbers and we can say no actually our carbon is worth this and this is what you'll pay us for it yeah
0: yeah Yeah. their goal it's the opposite everybody else wants to pay you a few dollars an acre they actually want to take a dollar an acre in investment and with that Mm -hmm. dollar an acre investment they're going to hopefully sign up 10 million acres raise 10 million dollars use that over the next year year and a half to come up with a very good plan Mm -hmm. on how they approach this and how they they come about this that might be starting their own verification software that could be contracting this out and leveraging it with the right partners or set of partners don't know what they're going to come out with and then they're going to reveal that and then those folks that put the initial dollar per acre in because you can only invest if you're a farmer put a dollar an acre down you know, you have a basically an option to invest further that's kind of their model which i think is neat yeah i think it's very laudable yeah. um that a lot of participation a lot of interest in that kind of model mm-hmm so that they can feel like, well, we don't know if we just, you know, if we're going to sell too early or sell too too fast or be locked up. We don't want to have a, our acres locked up in a long-term commitment in case this really does something, in case it really goes wild. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that's valid. I yeah. mean, it should be a concern. Because there was a carbon market like 20 years ago that did nothing. Like but started, some of those people
1: got paid for it.
0: Yeah. Yep, yeah, they did. Those there checks that got written.
1: and. I'm not saying that's going to happen again, but we don't know. Yeah. Well, so uh, that's why some people are like, mm, you know what? I just yeah. sign up. No. I'll take I mean, it.
0: checks are getting written every year from every one of the companies I mentioned. Right. Yeah. So there's there's real money flowing out into the ag community into rural America for this today. Right. It's not. If you looked at uh, adopting a very soil health system that I think is achievable to get 0.1 percent organic matter per year sustained. You not only have to do these practices, for most of these companies, you have to make the change with them, right? They'll give you like a one-year look back. Yeah. And this is the cause of the most heartburn, probably of any other features of carbon companies.
1: It sure seems like that. So, uh, to put it into a real-life example, you're saying if I was been no-Italian for 20 years um, planting cover crops, that practice cannot be done to actually build carbon if I sign up for a program today.
0: They would say that because the additionality didn't become didn't come as a result of the incentive, they can't take credit for it.
1: Mm-hmm. What about those that are actually measuring soil carbon through soil tests?
0: So that's possible. And I think that's what the, the ESMC and I don't really know if we should qualify them as a, a carbon program per se, but it's a, a group of individual or or larger companies actually based out of well, all over, but very much Minnesota, Minneapolis based. They are coming out with trying to create standards. They made a big splash about two years ago when they started, and I think that individually about half the members of the original ESMC has probably started their own thing now. But they came out with the process and said, hey, if you want to measure your own carbon, here's our protocol. You can use it. But it's very intense. Like, it's very intense. So if you don't want to use somebody's model, that means that you have to do the testing on every piece every year or however long you you wanted to go for that. So that could be pretty cost prohibitive, or you have to
1: do practices that are new, that qualify according to these verifying companies that actually build carbon. Yeah.
0: So let's say, let's say it's going to take thirty years to max your carbon potential out, and these are really just you know guesses. But say it takes thirty years. Let's say say that you could go from three percent organic matter to Almost six if you do everything just really good for a long time. So you're going to throw the book at it. Five years ago, you decided that you were going to go from what you were doing to full-on no-till, very diverse crop rotation, cover crops a lot, right? Like every year, every other year, increase, like mob graze covers, crop aftermath afterwards. Like throw the kitchen sink out of building soil carbon, mm-hmm. soil organic matter. If you were five years into that journey, it's going to take you 25 years to max out, Right? But still, even though you're going to actually sequester carbon for another 25 years in that scenario, yeah, the carbon companies won't accept you in because you made all those practice changes prior to yep. when they existed or to when they could come with you under contract. They'll have a look back. Sometimes it's a year. Sometimes it's three years. Sometimes it's three months. Everyone will have a look back of some sort. Yep. So you got to think about that. And then you also have to get a little bit creative on additionality, what additionality means. Okay. Yeah. So additionality, some folks have said, okay, if we went, we're went, we planting the three-species cover crop mix and we want to plant a 10-species mix, well, there's additionality right there. For sure. Even though we've been doing cover crops.
1: Should be. Should be, yeah. Because yeah. we've talked about more yep. species, more biodiversity, right. more organic matter should be built.
0: Yep. Some will say more diversity or planting a week early or terminating a week later. Just, just give us something, right? Give us something that we can put in. To, to use in this box to say we truly do have additionality.
1: And so if I'm a, let's just say I'm a rancher and I only have pasture rangeland and hayland, the only way that I can get paid for building carbon in my soils is by interseeding?
0: Uh, interseeding is the biggest chunk of it. Okay. There's also, so within the one model, and I guess, not being too specific, within the one model that accepts rangelands in that way, you, grazing management is a small piece of it. Uh, like a modest sized chunk for basically fertility amendments. So figuring out if there's something you're missing in your soil and making a small adjustment, not like going out and fertilizing a lot, making a small amount, 20, 30 pounds of total fertilizer with micronutrients or a few things NPK that are going to like cause a big surge in forage production because you're very deficient in it. So those two things make up a third of the model. The other two thirds of the model is additionality of species.
1: Maybe this is a little bit sidetracked, but it's very relevant. If, no, how do you incorporate um, an NRCS program that is also uh, incentivizing you for a grazing plant and interseeding multiple species into your pasture and a carbon program at the yeah. same time? Is it possible? That it's they, po-
0: very possible. Yeah, it's I plan ahead plan ahead basically um so if you have something in the target that you want to achieve if this is something you're curious about and i would say with with most of these they're not requiring the entire farm to set up so you can experiment um to some degree too some actually are whole farm systems otherwise you can just pick a field and say if i farm nine fields right um or have six pastures maybe i set up a field on a pasture with someone just to get a look at it right just kind of get an idea yeah, I'm not advocating for that, but like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be on all or nothing. There's yeah. not one that's so superior to the rest of them that you just gotta do this one. All right. So if you learn about that, uh, then then you could come out and say, All right, it's now I'm planning ahead. I've kind of got one of my sites here and I'm thinking about doing this next year. Well, I can overlay, make sure you go in the fall, right? Get your signature page signed up and do an equip contract or even a CSP contract that actually would co you know, would align with when you're making those changes. So yeah, you sure. could do that or like I said, usually they have a, what a one-year look back. They can go back and say, oh, you did that. It qualified. You can do that.
1: All right. So we started talking about Eggspire at the very beginning of this yep. podcast. And it seemed like uh, Eggspire is, is is somewhere where in this yeah. space? So, What is your role? So
0: our role today would be, in, and we're doing this for, um, we have a couple projects within supply chains. So we're working with their producers within a supply chain to help them understand this you know, this kind of riddle that's become conservation funding, as well as doing uh, some speaking and some other broad outreach. We hope to have a model in the next year where we can you can just call expire or email expire and say, I farm 800 acres and have 400 acres of pasture. Would you come out for X amount per acre and just come walk me through everything that you're talking about and show me all my options, right? So we can come out to that, do a conservation plan, and then kind of stand as retainer to help you through things we could come in and say, all right, based on your scenario for what you want to do, here is a program that exists within the public realm that fits what your priorities are, what you want to accomplish on your property. This would probably mean these things in a carbon program should you choose to want to be a part of one. Okay, you don't have to be. That's totally up to you. Or there may be, would be potential, um, depending on what you're doing and when, that a company that has a biodiversity pledge that wants to pay for some seed as part of a project, may actually want to be involved as well. Or a supply chain that says we want to kind of expand a cover crop footprint or a pollinator footprint in a certain area, they might want to be a part of your story too and be able to participate. So you don't want to, you can't sign up for three carbon programs at the same time. I mean, probably would work for maybe a year or so, and then they would figure out the verifiers, right? Those folks that are making sure that people are only doing, you know, one program at a time and not double selling credits would find out about it and kick you out and be on a blacklist. But if you're doing a program where you're creating Habitat through one entity, right, so that could be public, and that's really what got you to the table, but as long as you're doing it, you want to verify and show the carbon story through one of the markets, you can do that. If you had someone that wanted to come in and say, your story and what you're doing is part of helping my supply chain show that we're active and interested in driving adoption, you can be part of that. If you had a company that said, we're looking to add biodiversity, if you'll add three pollinating species within your cover crop mix, or if you'll add a dozen of these species into your, you know, grass seeding planting, we'll pay for something, right? So we'll give you an incentive or we'll pay for seed or something like that. Those opportunities are existing greater all the time. And then you say, okay, well, maybe we can't get fence funded to this program, but we'll go to this one over here and kind of just take a look at what you're willing, what you really want to do or what you're willing to do and come up with the program that we think has potential. So all that said is that that is a AgSpyre model. And mm-hmm. like I said, today, we've kind of got some, some larger customers that are supply chains that are funding us through specific farms and ranches. We do speaking engagements and that kind of stuff if you're interested in that. And then hopefully in six months to a year, we have this kind of service platform so that everybody can be available.
1: You yeah, bet. So. Oh, no, that's fantastic. So um, if... Or, I shouldn't say if. When that comes into fruition, and Eggspire is you know, a valid company that has these landowner advi- advisors to mm-hmm. walk along this path to be subsidized, paid by doing these conservation practices. Does Eggspire get paid through these companies that. That'd be my are, preference. Like, as yeah. a
0: farmer rancher myself, I'd prefer that the companies who made uh, large claims to add sustainability on their platform and their publicly. Sh- you know, traded share price yeah. was affected because of their claims that they probably should have had a budget to, to pay for something in that process. And one of those things that they can budget is technical assistance to their supply chain. So if you know that you're in a supply chain that produces X commodity, then, then that would be a possibility, or they can work in a general area. They say, well, we don't know exactly where the oats that we, we buy come from, but we, they, we know they come from this part of South Dakota, right through these, you know, mm-hmm. this footprint. They can come and say we're going to provide something generally to the footprint. So there's a couple of different ways that they could do that, um, or like I said, if uh, we we do want to have the oppor- opportunity for someone to just come in and say, "Hey, I'm I'm you know I'm interested. I want to go through this process. I've been thinking about making these changes. I want someone to come in and tell me you know what's possible, how it can be done, that kind of stuff." Yep. And on I it. don't want people to like hold up on adoption. Like I said most these have lookbacks. So if you've got a good handle on getting into some of these programs and these carbon programs and have a look back. Like I, like I would not hold up and watch. If you're worried about the dust blowing on your farm, I would not watch the dust blow for for another two years because you're waiting on someone to come in and tell you it's not a perfect roadmap. We want to be helpful in the process, but if you have the ability to make an adoption now on a practice and you want to don't, don't wait What I'm trying to say.
1: Yep. So looking forward, um, how does this not work? How does this go bad? What are the red flags that you see? Uh, advice to landowners producers
0: yeah so i think just stick with short-term contracts for now i I think the additionality thing will be somewhat figured out in the future because they're going to realize that the um if if you only pay people for additionality there's going to be a whole lot of oscillating back and forth between compliance and not compliance to be able to you know qualify again understanding that there's a you know max soil sequestration is probably 30 40 year type you know, time horizon not a five to ten year time horizon meaning mm-hmm. that almost nobody has been doing all these practices long enough to actually say that they've they've maxed out they can't go much farther okay there's always continuous improvement that can be done so i think that 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 those things will be kind of fixed a little bit over time but you have to remember additionality is one of the two key words within carbon markets that gets brought up all the time additionality and permanence so talk about permanence a little bit so permanence um is really lacking in crop plants because you could really turn it over real quick and go back the other way right so you can start on this process and you could decide that, you know what, I'm going to have a plowing bee at this piece on this 40 acre piece next year. And we're going to do like a, you know, living history farms. And we're going to have a plowing dis- demonstration every Sunday, you know, afternoon and bring tourists in. And we could plow that stuff once a week, the entire summer, Kay. right. Until it all blows away. Right. So you go backwards really fast. You can go yeah. backwards really fast if you want to. So that's the, that's the concern about permanence is that if we, that's why a lot of the systems are, are vested, right. So you, you get, they might say we'll pay fifteen dollars an acre. That payment comes in. It's like seven and a half the first year, then five dollars, then two and a half the third year, right? So, if you drop out of the program, you wouldn't get the full amount. That's kind of the carrot and stick okay. kind of model. So, sure. so I I think that I I don't know what else would actually compete with these natural solutions because there just really isn't that many options when you're trying to go carbon negative. There's just only a few ways to do it. So I, I do think it's going to continue to grow and and be a viable thing in the future. I think it's going to have a need and demand. I think it could get it's a possibility to get really high, like really high. Um, you know, there's there's several analogies that have been made. It, you don't have to agree 100 percent with the reasons why and the science for it to be a market, right? It can be a market all of its own um, without you doing. Anybody that thinks that they that markets have to be rational. You can watch like the NFT market, the non-fungible token is basically making a cartoon on your computer and selling it to someone for $2 million. It's, it's pretty much the dumbest thing of all time. But it emerged like a $40 billion market in 2021. So up from basically nothing the year before. So all of a sudden the market decided in one year that we're going to make a whole bunch of animated cartoons on computers worth $40 billion. And the actual physical art market globally in 2021 was only 50 billion dollars so in one year we decided that a bunch of you know computer-made cartoons are worth as much as all the physical art that was traded like classic paintings sculptures all these Mm. wonderful beautiful things uh in one year so don't think for a second because it's crazy it might not work right um three billion dollars three you know three trillion dollars and you know, cryptocurrency going on right yeah, now, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, so yeah. there's a whole bunch of crazy things out there that don't don't think it wouldn't be. The average, average value of the total fossil fuel industry last year was $3 trillion. And that was kind of like oilhead, you know, wellhead type prices, not retail prices. Some people postulate that if people are serious about going negative carbon or being, you know, carbon neutral, that at some point the carbon market will be the same value size as the traditional fossil fuel market, which seems a bit crazy, but again... Maybe That's less wild. crazy than spending $10 million on a cartoon cat that some 16-year-old in Japan made. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <right>. Like, <laughs> it doesn't have to be rational for it to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, get prepared. There could be. If I was, if you could store carbon credits, I would say that almost all the commitments that were made were made on years that end in a five and in a zero. So, by 2025, I think we'll have a very good idea. Okay. That's the first round. 2030 is the real test, very significant climate goals that are supposed to be achieved by companies through their ESG, environmental, social governance platforms by 2030. So I'll tell you pretty well by in eight years when 2030 hits, whether this thing really goes or not. Mm -hmm. I think we'll probably know sooner, but for for sure by then. If it doesn't take off and everybody just abandons these things and goes back to saying, emit all the carbon we want, something happens, then then it could fall apart. Yeah, well,
1: it's an exciting time because this is something um, that, that could be huge yeah. and could be extremely valuable for landowners and farmers. And so I think it's something mm-hmm. to not uh, put your sa- your head in the sand about and, and make sure that you're yeah. in touch with it and you're paying attention. And yeah, may- maybe you dabble with a piece of ground, like you said, and you just get your feet wet and you learn from that. Um, but um, you know, may- maybe it's okay to hold on and, and see what's to come with this because 25 years is a long time from now. Yes, and if we're seeing the start of where we believe carbon is valued at, if we don't hit the numbers that could be projected, the price has to go up, right? Right.
0: So, yep. No, I think it's 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 interesting. Um, like I said, we're watching it um, just to make sure because it, it it is driving demand, right? Justin, you've sold cover crop mixes and grass seed mixes into folks that are like, oh yeah, we signed up with so and so, right? Yeah. You know, it's, they've got to do it. Yeah. Yep. yep, they sign up to do it and be excited about it. Maybe they did it with CSP or with Equip. Maybe they've done their yeah. own. Um, but it's it's starting to affect demand here already. We're seeing it, it
1: is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good.
0: That's, I think I answered most of the questions, didn't I? I think you did. I think
1: yeah. this is, Uh. yeah, we want to talk about getting credit for listening to a course. This is it.
0: We should do a live one of these sometime. Then we can do, like, call-in. Just call into like the number. All right. Number.
1: Caller number, uh, line important. number two, you're on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that would be fun. Yeah. I have Jerry from Bushnell, <laughs> South Dakota. No, we don't. Nobody called. We're not live. All but right. Till next time. Is that a wrap? That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Okay. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Jared. See you. We'll see you.